Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you about Pledge Allegiance Flag Company. It is a veteran-owned and operated business. They make 19 by 36 and 13 by 24 handcrafted, gorgeous, rustic, wooden American flags, challenge coin flags, military flags, thin red line, thin blue line, custom orders, and they offer free personalized engraving with each order. You can find them on Etsy by clicking the link down below in the description below. That's Pledge's Flag Company. Also, I have written a book. It is titled Another Boring Book About Being a Firefighter in EMT. Subtitle is Useless Advice and Offensive Stories. This book has serious issues but written in a humorous way. It also has funny stories. This book is not going to have long-winded chapters filled with bullcrap. It will be short and nasty. I have not seen or done it all. There have been thousands of firefighters and EMTs who have done so much more than I have and they are far better firefighter EMTs than me. I am just simply writing this book to share what I've learned and my experiences with you. You can find my book on Amazon by clicking the link below. I also have a list of all the chapter titles in the description below. Now on to the episode. Hello everyone. This episode is going to be different from the other ones that I've made. This one's definitely going to be a lot longer, 45 minutes plus. Last year I tried an interview style podcast and I just got tired of it mainly because trying to coordinate with folks to do it over the phone I started this podcast before the pandemic started, and then after that, you know, people got busy, scared, frustrated, whatever, and I just like, you know what, the hell with this type of podcast, and then it took me a while to think of the podcast I'm doing now, the short form, but this one's going to be 45 minutes long, this is between me and my cousin, we did it over the phone, he's in Wyoming, still, he was, he was in Wyoming when I did this, but when he was 19 years old, he went to college and then decided to go hitchhiking across America with him and a friend. And crazy son of a bitch. He's definitely got big brass balls doing this kind of stuff. So hope you enjoyed the podcast. Oh, real quick too, it was done over the phone. So if I didn't say that already, so the audio is not that great. But it's okay. But I hope you enjoy it. Did you pick up any hitchhikers on the way? Uh, I did. I picked up a couple of hitchhikers in, <laughs> right outside of Minneapolis. What did you, how to tell us about your journey that led to a hitchhiking across America? Just go into it. Well, right after high school, I went to University of Cincinnati. Um, enjoyed a few years there. Kind of grew up in a smaller town, Lima. And I wanted to go to one of the bigger cities in Ohio. Still stay kind of close to the family. But went to University of Cincinnati. And uh, I was there for four years after college. Uh, I didn't have much going on. I wanted to do a little more exploring before I got into a career. And uh, I had been given a car by my grandpa, and I drove it around, drove it to Alaska, um, then to Florida. How long was that drive to Alaska? Um, that was a two-week trip. So it took about five days. I didn't stay in Alaska, but a couple of days, so um, it was about go? five days. I drove all the way. To, first, I drove across America to San Francisco, and then I headed up north all the way on the Alcan Highway. Jesus. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it, did you pick up any hitchhikers on the way? Uh, I did. I picked up a couple of hitchhikers in, <laughs> right outside of Minneapolis. One guy oh. was an old truck driver. He really clean guy. He had everything folded in his bag real nicely. 
bunch of passes at these truck stops for showers. The other kid was a young kid. I would say he was 19 years old. He was heading to San Francisco from New York to see a friend of his. Uh, Two really nice guys. Um, We're driving along Kansas, and this kid in the backseat, he says, uh, hey, there's a cop behind us. Well, in Kansas, there's not much to look at, so you're just looking forward. So I pull over, and this cop runs up. He says, I've been back there for five minutes. And I looked at him and said, I'm so sorry, sir. And, uh, well, it ends up I didn't have a driver's license somewhere in there that that ticket. So I had one of the hitchhikers start driving now. And then they drove the rest of the way to San Francisco. And then You didn't have it, or did you had it suspended or something? Um, I didn't have it on me. Oh, okay. And uh, he's like, well, you can't drive if you don't have it. I said, okay, whatever. He didn't know the other guys were hitchhikers. But, so now I've got the hitchhikers driving my car. And uh, so we get to San Francisco. We drop the younger fellow off, and then we head north. And uh, the one, the second guy, the truck driver, he stayed in Washington, and I went on through up to Alaska. Uh, stayed there, hiked around. I was walking around by the train station to Nolly National Park, and uh, some guy, there's a little gravel runway by the train station there. And this guy was putting fuel in his plane. He said, hey, you want to go on a ride? And I was just hiking along with my backpack. I said, sure, I'll go on a ride. And... Uh, get in the plane with him after he's done fueling up. And we take off, and he's giving me the spiel on the area. And he lives in this little town. It was an old gold mining town, I believe. His name was Kentishna. Uh-huh. And uh, we landed on a little gravel runway, hopped in a little minivan, and drove to, it was like a little store or a stop on the way that there's a big loop in the park that a bus drives around, picks people up and drops people off. It takes the bus almost all day to go around it. And, uh, I get on the bus, or after we land, you know, we drove to the little store we had there and a place for people to stay, wait for the bus, get there. There's a little group of Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts with their um, chaperones, and we all hop on the bus, and the bus was in over eight hours. It only took us 45 minutes to fly from that airport to his place, and it took eight so they hours. Just, they allowed random strangers to come on the bus? Yeah. The bus is, it's a park bus. So oh, okay. It's, uh, the park sends it around. There were people we picked up just in the middle of nowhere. There'd be people standing on the side of the road. We picked them up. They had their hiking backpacks on, tents and sleeping bags. And then there were people that were getting off. And it, it just makes a loop every day. Uh-huh. So I got back to the park and then, um, I think I spent one more night and I started heading back. Uh, then I drove across <laughs> Canada. I, I went across the U.S. all the way to the west, and then I went across Canada all the way to the east. Uh-huh. And um, come back down through Michigan. And the Border Patrol guy's like, what were you doing there? I said, well, I was just checking it out. <laughs> so uh, after that trip, uh, went, we went hiking, met up with some high school friends. We went hiking to Mount Whitney in California. And uh, we got to the top of that. That was kind of a bachelor party for a friend of mine. And... Um, then that winter, I ended up giving my car to Goodwill. What? Going, yes. <laughs> I didn't, uh, I had a bunch of miles on it and nobody wanted to give me much for it. I went to Goodwill, gave it to Goodwill, bought a plane ticket to Europe. And uh, as you know, the, uh, we had a bunch of exchange students and I went to visit them. And I, I went traveling across Europe for three months. 
and what for and, and for listeners, what it is is that my aunt Charles's mom uh, was part of the foreign exchange program that would she was basically the ambassador liaisons for Ohio or the at least at least a region in Ohio that you know this EF I think was the name of the program. Is that right? Yes. yes. And so basically they say, hey, we've got like from us. For my side of the family, we had a guy from Norway, a guy from Holland, and one from Japan, Tokyo, Japan. And so, but you know, my your mom would place them in different homes throughout. So you you've gotten to know a lot of these. You still stay you still stay in contact with them. So that's how you're able to find housing overseas. Is this going basically house to house to the prior exchange students? Yes. Okay. Who did you see first? Uh, I flew into Austria and to see. Uh... The Crane's family. They um they have a hotel and restaurant in Obertown and I went uh-huh. to visit them. And then I went to London because their son was going to hotel management in London. I went there for stayed there for a week. We got snowed in, the airport wasn't flying anybody out for a couple of days, so our departure was de- delayed. And uh stayed there a couple more days. We had a great time in London. And we flew back to Austria. Stayed there for, I think I was there for a month before I went anywhere else because they live right on the ski slope. Uh-huh. And then I went to Spain, Madrid, Spain, and hung out there. Got to see um, the family and Juan, is his name, that came to stay with us for a year. Uh-huh. And then from there I went up to Amsterdam and hung out with uh, Martin. Then I went to Sweden and hung out with uh, Joanna. And then from Sweden, I got really sick. Uh, I got strep throat. So I flew back to Austria and stayed there until I got better. And stayed there for two more weeks. And uh, then I flew back to the States. Now I'm back in the States with no car because I gave it to Goodwill. So uh, I was working for a friend I'd, I'd worked for before, putting in-ground swimming pools in. Uh-huh. And... Uh, after the season, it's real hustle and bustle before May because everybody wants their pools ready to go. Yeah. So you're working sun up to sun down. And then after that, I want to go and, you know, I'm going to go on another hiking trip with some other friends. So I met him out in Wyoming and I actually drove out to Wyoming without a license. I tried to get insurance, but I wouldn't have insurance because I didn't have a license because when I was in Europe and I gave my car to Goodwill, I had an SR-22 on my my record um, from a reckless operation, like when I was 18 years old, uh-huh. for a pulling my e-brake. And anyway, uh, so I mean? drive out there. You were pull, you driving to pull the e-brake and skid the car in a donut or something, or what? Yeah, I was skidding my tires with the e-brake. <laughs> and the cop didn't like it. It's like a reckless operation. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Because I didn't, now I gave my car to Goodwill, I had the SR-22. When I gave my car to Goodwill, I canceled my insurance. So the SR-22 thing notifies the state you're driving without insurance, even though I was out of the country. Not driving uh-huh. So when I came back, I tried to get my insurance again. They wouldn't give it to me. So now I'm driving across the country in my car and I uh, get out meet my friends out here in uh, Wyoming. And we go hike we are going to Mount Moran and um, do the hike. It was an awesome hike. Did some other hikes. Did Tiwanot. 
Um, and they all flew in, and now they fly back. And I was wandering around, and I had an old car, an old 71 Impala Custom that I was driving around. It was kind of an old beater, mm-hmm. primer color, and uh, drew a lot of attention. Not positive attention. So I'm sure. The uh, <laughs> park rangers come up. I was sleeping in my car one night. I didn't want to set up my tent. It was late when I got back to the tent, the camping spot. And I was laying down, and I heard footsteps in the gravel. And there's bear country there. So I, I set up, and I started the car, and I drove to another to another just random parking lot. And then I wake up to a park ranger knocking on my window. I'm the only car in this parking lot. And he goes, oh, you can't sleep in your, your car. So he asked for my license and everything, and I, I didn't have my license. And I told him the deal. He's like, well, you, you can't drive. Just put the car over here and find a ride. Well, I didn't know anybody there, so I waited till he left, and then I left, and the car ended up breaking down, and now I'm stuck walking hitchhiking. Uh-huh. And uh, so I... He just left it. Where'd you leave it at? Uh, on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> it broke down, and I couldn't move it. They'd actually put a boot on it when they'd seen it. Holy shit. Because they knew it was my car and they said I was driving it. So they put a boot on it. Like, well, I guess this stays here. And you, and, so uh, you, never, you never got it. You just left it there. Yeah. <laughs> I was out of money by that time. I'd spent a lot of money in Europe and traveling. And, um, and now I'm looking for a job and I'm hitchhiking. A couple cool people gave me rides through Jackson, through the end of town. I caught a ride with a guy that runs the, the dog sleds at Granite Hot Springs. He gave me a ride um, to Bondurant, and then another gentleman gave me a ride. He was going to run a place to go get a backhoe. He gave me a ride to Pinedale, and then uh, I was in Pinedale. I had some food, and then I'm walking through Pinedale. Another couple, they gave me a ride to a, where was that? Um, actually, this other guy gave me a ride and he, to a little camping area because it was getting late by now. He said he could get me a job in the oil field because I need a lot of help. So, uh, all right. And he sets me up. He's like, you just, I'll be back in the morning. I set my tent up and got him a sleeping bag, went to sleep, woke up, packed my tent up, and that guy rolled in just like he said he would. Uh, took me to Pinedale and gave me a phone number of a guy. And I waited at this, uh, it was at a bar early in the morning. There were a few people drinking coffee there, and I waited for a couple hours, and that guy never showed up. That um, I was supposed to talk to, so I got another ride, and they took me further south to Farson. And I was waiting in a parking lot in Farson, and uh, a guy pulled over and popped in with him, and there was a, a non-English-speaking gentleman uh, and another guy sitting in there. And so I'm talking to the one guy, and his name is John Baker, and he asked if I wanted a job. I'm sure I'll take a job. What are we doing? And he told me we'd be working on the rigs, so. He drops me off, and I set my tent up out behind this place. And he gave me a phone number to a guy. That uh, was a uh, drug testing place. So I camped out behind there, woke up in the morning, went and this is kind of the standard operation for getting a job in the oil field. You go take your drug test and did that. And then the guy come and picked me up. Um, the manager of the company, he picks me up and drives me out to the rig. Uh, the only other time I'd seen a rig is they were drilling some holes out house in Ohio in the field because that used to be a oil field in the 1890s and they were doing some testing but uh, 
they dropped me off out there. Must have been 10 other guys out there. and They all knew what they were doing. I had no clue what I was doing. I just started working with them, and then. Uh, so let me let me let me let me hold on before before we dig into the oil field business. Let's get to the uh, hitchhiking and picking up hitchhikers. Was there any at one time that you met somebody that you're like, nope, I am I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm walking away. You know, was there any like spiders? You know, spidey tingles, spy, spidey senses kicking in or anything like that, or was it pretty much you just got lucky? Uh, no, one time. So when I, I forgot the guy I picked up while I was in Alaska. I picked this guy up. He's on a bicycle. Now, in Alaska, you got to fill up. If you're in a car, you better fill up at every gas station you pass because there won't be one in between fill-ups. Uh-huh. You'll run out of gas if you skip one. So I see this guy, and we're, we're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if we'd made it. If we're in the British Columbia, or all the way to the Yukon by here. And I pick him up. Now, we're so far north, it doesn't get dark at night. It's still a little... A little bit of light in the sky. And I pick him up, and we're driving along, and the guy's kind of weirded me out. He tells me he crosses the border uh, somewhere where they didn't know he crossed the border, and he's hitchhiking, and he just seemed a little little off. So I got a little further up, close to a, a gas station. We pulled over, and I told him, this is a, uh, you know, I'm refueling and making a, a scheduled stop anyway. Now, I say scheduled just because I meant to stop didn't matter if that guy was listening or not. I had to stop. But uh, uh-huh. I told him, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to leave you here. You know, i got some other things I need to do. And uh, Appreciate it. Cool. It was good meeting you. Uh, good luck on your travels. And then I, I went on. Uh, that was the only odd experience I've had picking people up. Did he try and negotiate with you to stay? Yeah, I mean, he was kind of you know, bummed out and not begging, but, oh, please. And I suppose he was begging, but. I can't. I'm uh, sorry. You know, I can't do that. And, so, well, what time of year was it that you went up to Alaska? Was that summertime? That was or summertime. Winter? It was summertime. Okay. So it was warm right. out, and he was he was on a bicycle, got a backpack and a sleeping bag, and then further up, I met some kids. Uh, I say kids, you know, early twenties. They were bicycling. Their intent was to ride their bicycles. They had uh, this guy that the hitchhiker I picked up. He had some Walmart bicycle, mountain bike looking thing. He didn't have the proper gear for what he was doing. Um, the next kids I ran into was at some hot springs, and I think now I'm up in um, between British Columbia and the Yukon. There's a hot springs there. And they're at a restaurant, and I'm talking to them. You can, you can kind of tell who's doing what when you're traveling like that, and all the kids, younger kids exploring. And uh, they had rode from Oakland, California, on their bicycles. Holy crap. And, we're we're uh, two thousand miles north of Oakland, and then uh, so we talked about where we're gonna stay for the night, and um, we pull over to this. They pedal their bikes over the spot, and I drive my car, and there's these little. Uh, it's like a makeshift tent, and there were some natives there. Uh, they call them, in, I believe it's indigenous people in Canada. We go over and talk to them, and they're real welcoming. And it was the chief of the tribe, his daughter, and some uh, some other young men there. And they were meeting people that were coming up to check out their land. They were taking people on helicopter rides, and they were trying to get some investors for a cultural center. There's not much going on that highway for people to do, and he thought it would make sense to have a cool cultural center there, which didn't make sense, and I haven't been up through there since to see if they've built it. But uh, very nice people, and uh, we sat and talked to them for a while, and then 
Where is, where is this in relation to like Fairbanks and Anchorage or, or cause I'm, I'm trying to picture Alaska in my head and the map. I'm just trying to figure yeah. out. Well, we're not quite in Alaska yet. We're, we are British Columbia. Okay. Okay. The Yukon and then Alaska. So we're about halfway from, Alaska, okay. from Seattle to, to Alaska at this point. Okay. Um, and so that that's where that hot springs is. I'd have to look it up on a map to get the name of it. Great place, uh, really cool people there. And then um, so that, after that, went to bed, woke up in the morning. Those boys packed up their stuff and got riding on their bicycles. And I drove along and got to Alaska. Uh, in Alaska, I picked up a few hitchhikers there. They were heading up to Fairbanks from right outside of Anchorage. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to go to Fairbanks uh, on my way to Denali. Or not on my way to Denali, went to Denali and then from Denali to Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Check it out, and uh, it was it was nice. I picked up a few more people there, young, mostly younger college kids hitchhiking. In Canada, uh, there were in uh, where was that Blackcomb, British Columbia, I think was the name of it, where the ski resort is. There was a lot of people hitchhiking there. Uh, you know, girls, guys, anybody that needed a ride through town, they were they were. Hitchhiking. It's, uh, did you did you work at all anytime you were doing this just to make a little extra cash, like odd jobs? No, or just for uh, saving. The Alaska trip was only fourteen days, but other I worked at um, I think you call it Superior Pools in Cincinnati. Is where okay. I worked. Uh, so you saved your money from the pool stuff to, before you went traveling. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'd work sun up to sundown for a few months straight, and then I'd take a few weeks off. Okay. And then come back and we would do more swimming pools. So this was just a two-week journey for to the Alaska. And then did more pools all through the summer. And then went to uh, Europe what, and did some more pools. What's some of your biggest tips for one, you know, obviously first tip would be is to save as much as you can. And then, you know, tips on, you know, safety and planning your trip. Was there things that you wish you would have brought with you on the trip? Things you didn't need, and what kind of if you were somebody was if I was to say you know hey I'm going to go from Ohio to California in my car, but you know what would you suggest? Uh, I always bring a sleeping bag, a cooler, uh, and I put some food in there. And then when I get on a map, now this is before you pulled your phone out and got on a map. This was a, a paper map, and yeah. I would try to plan to go through the cities. You know you can get your miles and you know how fast you're going to be traveling, approximately how long it's going to take you to get wherever. Try to plan so you're not going through the big cities during rush hour. Try to plan so you're fueling up uh, maybe outside of the big cities to where it's easier just the truck stops and uh, gas stations that are right there on the highway and look a little more secure. You don't want to get off in some random neighborhood that you're not familiar with. Uh, I think at one point we've all accidentally gotten off the wrong exit and like, nope, not for me. Yeah, I've done that several times and... uh, (laughs) get back on and maybe it wasn't bad but i didn't feel right so i just went on to the next one i like a lot of people being around um if there's not very many people around then uh, i don't i'm not comfortable with that i'm some people are comfortable with a lot of people and some people yeah which is crazy within the veteran community especially the ones that's been deployed like crowds you know we we, they tend to avoid crowds so Mm -hmm. But I understand where you're coming from is that if something was to happen to you, at least you could scream like help or fire or something like that to get yeah. somebody's attention to call 911. Yeah, you know, more people there to, to assist. Uh, I suppose that's 
I trust the people I'm around. I haven't mm-hmm. been subjected to crowds of people who might be the enemy. Supposedly. Right. So at least, at least you don't. At least you hope they help and not just take your phone out and upload it to World Star. You know, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I see that a lot. Oh God. So after all the traveling, and then you went, you got, you went to Wyoming, and you. It's your first day on the job in the oil industry. What did what what was your vibe and what did they have you do? Like did they spend two weeks to a month training you or was it like, you know, get your ass over there and start helping these guys and learn as you go? Yeah. It was you get in there and you help out and you learn as you go. Uh-huh. So uh what they were doing is after the drill industry comes in and drills the hole, then they come and frack it to get the gas and the oil to flow into the well bore, and then you come and drill out these plugs after the frack. So we're uh-huh. there drilling those plugs out, picking up tubing with the rig, and uh, so I'm just bucking pipes is what they call it, pushing it up to the guys in the snubbing unit, and then they're picking it up with the rig and then screwing it together and sinking it in the hole until they get to their next plug. They drill that plug out, and I'm running the pump, pumping uh, water, and then... Uh, the other guys were just helping do whatever they could around the, the rig. Uh, one guy's running the rig. you got guys on the snubbing unit. They're shoving pipe in the hole because there's so much pressure to blow it out of the hole. And how are they said, shoving it in the hole with a machine, or how would yeah, that work? Yeah, it's a machine. The snubbing unit's got hydraulic rams on it, and it slips. It grabs the pipe, and the, the hydraulic rams shove that, uh, push the pipe down, and then you've got uh-huh. a, a rubber, an annular that squeezes around the pipe so it doesn't leak. So shoves the pipe down through there. How far down typically do people drill for oil? What's the um, average? In this area, we're at uh, Wyoming for natural gas. We're ten, ten to fourteen thousand feet, and then North Dakota, it's about ten thousand feet is where they're getting their oil. Uh huh. Plus or minus five hundred feet. They're doing a bunch of seismographs tests to find out where the pay zone is. Yeah. What's the what's the most shallowest area in America? Right? That's a proper term. Um, I wouldn't know where the shallowest is. There's there's areas where it seeps at the surface, but uh, oh, okay. you can get it at two, three hundred feet. You see little tiny pump. If you go through Texas, you see some of them little tiny. There's like toy pump jacks. That's uh-huh. that horse's head looking thing that goes up and down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I haven't traveled everywhere to know what the depths are. Even in Ohio, there you got those little shallow ones. Lima, where I grew up, it was like 800 to 1200 feet. Uh huh. Um, so as time's gone on, technology gets better. They've been digging deeper and deeper. It's like out in the ocean. You know, they'll go through 10,000 feet of water just to start drilling it. You know, the ocean floor, and then drill another uh, few thousand feet. Have you ever worked on the those pipes on those out there platforms? Uh, no, I haven't. I work with oh. a lot of people who have, and that's probably why I haven't, because none of them really suggest it. <laughs> what's what's the, because of just safety? Like you're stuck on it, something happens. Yeah, and I don't. They weren't so concerned about the safety as it was just being out in the middle of nowhere in pieces. Just imagine this location here, which is about a five-acre location usually that we work on, where the, uh-huh. the it's all leveled out. He says, and that's all you got. You can't walk over there in the desert. There's no desert. It's just water. And you're not going for a swim. Uh-huh. And you stay out there for months. But uh I said the food was really good. So they'll bring chefs out there and cook for you, but you're stuck there, so Yeah. I guess you uh, gotta you gotta get along with everyone's personality, which I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some individuals in the in the oil industry who don't have the best personality. 
I can yeah. get that. And they're going to have they, a lot of the HR. That's what they're doing. They're trying to sift through the people who can can handle that. But more of uh, like a psychological analysis of is this person capable of. Doing they do that. a psyche eval on people before. Um, not like to a psychiatrist, but I would say the HR people. And then you know you got references from friends and. Uh, other coworkers are going to tell you because there's a lot of people you work with that have been out there already, and you know how you get to feel for people when you work with them long enough. Yeah, uh, that way, yep. it's more of a reference thing, and then HR will look up your references or people okay. that they know already uh-huh. that know you, and they'll talk to them. I got you. They're not going to put you in a position that you're not going to be comfortable in, uh-huh. uh, because that's going to cause other people to not be comfortable or put you in a uh, hazardous condition or situation with uh, yeah. kind of looking out for everybody when you're in the oil fields. Uh, yeah. Guys, you got to look out for them. Sometimes the new guys are looking out for you because they're a little more scared of stuff and they see things that you're used to seeing and they might bring it to your attention. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. That shouldn't be like that. What's some of the biggest, I guess, the most common screw-up for a new guy out there that happens on the, oh, I guess, this, the oil field in, in, in the States, you know, what's, you know, land-based What's the typical screw-up that happens for new guys? Um, they don't know where to stand with moving machinery. and the, You're picking pipe up. You're moving the tongs that screws the pipe together. Uh, they're, usually they're standing in the wrong spot when there's swinging um, pipe or equipment, moving equipment. So they get mm-hmm. smashed or crushed or get their fingers cut off because they're putting their oh. fingers where something's moving that gets caught in there. Is that, that pretty common? The biggest thing. Uh, it was more common with the older equipment that they used. They're getting better at it, but, um, yeah, I know that a lot of the fatalities or injuries that we have is, is probably one a year. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I guess in that ratio, in comparison to people in the oil industry, I mean, there's, you know, fatalities in every line of work. Yeah. Pretty much. I, mean, I suppose our big risk is actually driving to location. It's road hazards, which everybody's exposed to that. Uh-huh. But, you know, just oil field specific, like on location, would be they're standing in the wrong spot, getting hurt, putting their hands where something's getting ready to move and it crushes it or cuts it. And with the housing, so you, um, starting off, you were basically, like, were you like in one big trailer or big house all together? Um, when I first started off, I was fortunate enough, the guy that picked me up said I could stay with them, and um, I stayed, I go into his house, nicest guy ever. He pulled his kid's bed out of his bedroom and throws it in his bedroom with him, and then I stay in his bedroom, and then uh, we ended huh. up renting a bigger place, all of us together. There weren't a lot of places available, so you kind of, you had families living with other families, and we rented another place and uh, lived together for a few months until I got my place, but... So the so the oil they don't try to they don't have a like private housing for their workers maybe some do uh, some do when it gets a little more established it seems like I've been coming to these boom towns like right out of the gate before they even get that established uh-huh. almost closer to the exploratory state of it than the the established state of the operation they plan these out they'll explore areas and once they know that they've got a good amount of gas or oil there. Then uh-huh. they start to plan for it. Now, if you get in there right away, they don't have the plan yet. Uh, and the companies don't have all the 
housing yet. The workers haven't even come to build the housing. They do those roll-off trailers. I stayed in those. When I went to North Dakota from Wyoming, we stayed in a, a roll-off trailer. So in 2008, the gas prices really fell down. There were a lot of layoffs in Wyoming. And I knew a lot of people that had good skills. And my little brother went up to North Dakota. He worked for a crane company moving drilling rigs. And then when the oil prices got low in 2008 and 2009, he went to work for a workover rig company, which does the service on the wells. And he called us up and said, hey, they need help up here. So I got a hold of a bunch of friends of mine that were all laid off. And we loaded up in my truck and we went to North Dakota. And a guy met us and took us to a, it's like a trailer, but it sits on a skid, a semi-truck, a winch truck will suck it right up on a trailer and move it to another spot. Um, so we stayed in there for uh, six months, uh-huh. and that was in North Dakota, Williston, North Dakota. And I got hired on to Baker Hughes, and I came back to Rock Springs, worked uh, in the gas field here for another year, and then started working um, back in North Dakota for Baker Hughes. Went okay. on to a, a smaller company, a local company in Williston. Now you're a consultant? Yeah, I consult uh, for gas and oil completions and production. I was working for a company uh-huh. doing fishing. So in uh, parts break, we have tools. You go down, uh, the rig comes out there, and it's connected to the bottom of the pipe, and you go down and you get a hold of a broken piece of pipe or tubing. You know, the, there's a lot of friction going on when they're running that pump down hole. There's rods hooked to the pump, and the rods break or you get a hole in the tubing because the rods are going down inside the tubing and they break. And then you call a fishing company because they have their tools to get a hold of those broken pieces. And you get a, a rig out there, a service rig. And you'll pull out what whatever comes out of the hole, and then you connect your tools to that pipe they pulled out of the hole, or if you get a work string, and they run in there and get a hold of the broken pieces and pull it to the surface and how, replace how the pieces. How do they do that? Like if you break a drilling, if you break a drill piece, I don't know, whatever... Yeah. 2,000 feet down, how does that work? So we know all the dimensions of it when it, before it goes in the hole. We measure everything. Uh-huh. So you come out of the hole and you're, you're missing something. So you look at the break, you measure it, and you figure out, okay, we counted every piece of pipe that went in and measured every tenth of an inch of it, literally. And this is how much we recovered. This is how much is in there. And where it broke, it's this big around. And the idea of it is this size. So the fishing company goes through their tools that will grab that size a pipe or a tool that wherever it broke and you connect that to the pipe you pulled out of the hole you, you replace whatever the broken piece is and now you run you lower that back that tool down in the hole on the on pipe and you get down to the broken piece and it swallows it up I, I explain like a Chinese finger trap a lot of times it's called a grapple oh, okay. that makes and sense and it gets a hold of it and when you pull on it it cinches real tight on it and you pull it to surface. Sometimes it's stuck and you got to um, pull harder and they have jars that make it kind of like a slide hammer down hole. Mm-hmm. And, and you got to bump it loose. Uh, sometimes it's you have to run over it uh, with wash pipe that's pipe that's bigger and you circulate fluid as you're going down over top of the fish to wash out whatever is, you know, buried in sand or sediment or maybe a piece of metal found out next to it. Some people drop pipe wrenches in, in the hole. I mean, <laughs> you can, you got a hole in the middle of a 
a 10 foot by 10 foot floor and three guys working up there with a bunch of tools. Sometimes things fall down in the hole and uh, we yeah. got to get them out. I wonder, oh, how, how, wonder how long it took them to figure out that whole that Chinese finger contraption. Has that been around um, a long time? or is It's that... been around a long time. Okay. I would say ever since they've been drilling, they've been losing okay. stuff down there. And I mean, it just, those... it's, that's crazy thought. Like, you know, how it's, you explain it like that. It's perfect for, you know, me to imagine in my head who knows mm-hmm. nothing about the oil industry. But that makes sense. That's actually, yeah. that's, that's, that's genius. Weatherford has a cool video on YouTube you can watch, uh, put in Weatherford Fishing, and uh-huh. it, it has a little um, computer-animated presentation of how it works. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so how long on the field as a, as a, I guess, what, they call you a roughneck, how long were you working as a roughneck before you was able to get into, like, the management position? Um, I was a roughneck for seven years, and then I became a, a tool hand. Uh-huh. Um, and is, is it like is everything in the movies with a lot of fighting, you know, fist fighting going on amongst the roughnecks and all that? Or is it kind of really relaxed? No, I mean there's some rough guys, but it's gotten a lot more tame. When I first got out there, I remember there was uh, the kid on the the snubbing crew. He was a a few times. They said he was a couple times state champion, and they said if you can put him on his back, you'll get a hundred bucks. And at this time, I was out of money, and I'm hitching down the road and got a ride and staying in my tent and. Hadn't had a paycheck yet, and like, boy, I really need a hundred bucks. So I went out and wrestled the kid, and I threw him on his back once, and they're like, "Wow, that's quick." <laughs> and that kid's like, "Oh, do it again. I bet you can't." Now his ego's a little torn, so grabbed a hold of him, tossed him on his back again. Then, people, uh, people are listening. They don't know that you wrestled from what sixth grade to twelfth, and then you hold state titles when you're in high school. No, I don't have any state titles. I was, Okay. Went to the state tournament a couple times. Um, At least you went to the state tournaments. I mean, a lot of people yeah. don't make it. You yeah, know. I did real well there. I um, wrestled with some really good guys. Um, Which I never understood in my high school that we have all these cornbread kids who play football, but then that's it. Football and then basketball. And there was no wrestling. Like, seriously, we got some really good dudes here. Like, But, nope putting money yeah. into a losing basketball team, but whatever. <laughs> and those farm communities that do have teams are, are pretty successful. Um, yeah, you always hear a lot of, you know, out of Ohio State, Indiana, Northwestern, Minnesota, like they get some really good teams. Yeah. I mean, now with the Internet and the up-and-coming with MMA and everything, like everyone's doing it. But when you, you know, people took who did wrestling in high school, you already had to leg up on self-defense. So, yeah. So with with the with my kids, you know, basically when they get a little bit older, I have them do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and stuff like that to learn self-defense. So and it, it, the discipline you get out of it, um, you learn to learn from a coach, somebody telling you what to do. Uh, There's so many advantages to it. Uh, for sure, you can't go wrong with it. For sure, you learn to deal with defeat. Uh, you win with grace, you lose with grace. Yeah. It's a good experience for sure. So six years, uh, seven years as a roughneck, and then... Then I went uh, to do a tool hand. That was when I worked for Baker Hughes. And uh, uh-huh. um, I worked for Baker Hughes for two years, and then I went went to consulting and... Uh, What's a tool hand, though? What's that for people who uh, don't know? I run the tools. So that what I was explaining, where we bring tools out to go retrieve the broken pieces. 
uh-huh. or there's other things you do with packers. Uh, uh, specific tools down in the hole to test different zones that are producing. Okay. Uh, that's the guy that runs specialty tools out. He knows that tool. He's an expert on that tool. Uh-huh. Comes out to the rig and then advises the consultants out there, the rig crews, uh, how it needs to be ran for it to function properly. And then you you go out to a location. You're still out with the location, working with the roughnecks. Uh, you're just uh, the advisor on how to run that tool. Okay. See, and then you, you now you're doing consulting. You kind of dive into that, like you know what what does that all entail? Um, you're the guy on location that's in charge of the operations out there. Uh, if you were going to build a house and you got the foreman on the job that lines out the electrician, the plumber, the the roofer and the framer. Uh-huh. So the consultant out there is lining out all the companies and the services that he needs to get done. Uh, get Who finds done. the oil? Like, are you part of the, trying to find the oil? How does that work? Um, those are exploration. I don't find the oil. Those are okay. guys that are, you know, back in the day, they would just look at the land and land like, oh, let's drill here. That looks good. And they were just drilling everywhere. Well, now we've got technology where we do the seismographs. Um, uh-huh. They'll run and they'll bury a little grid of explosives and then they'll have sensors on the ground and they detonate the explosives and the vibration goes down on the ground and then the, the um, what do I want to say, the reflection of the vibration mm-hmm. gives them a readout of what's down there. Okay. So it, it echoes back. And then that tells them the densities of the the ground down there. And I'm not explaining that thoroughly because I haven't done it myself. But Wait, yeah. then that gives them kind of like a map, a layout what's down there. And then they're like, okay, we think it's right here. So they'll go drill a test hole. And they'll run a tool down in that test hole and do a reading. And then they'll shoot holes and in, out into the formation. So the vertical hole goes straight down. And then they'll run a tool down there that shoots little projectiles into the rock of where they think the oil might be, and they'll sit and test it and see if there's any oil there or gas there. They're getting pretty good at it because they know what to look for with those seismograph tests. Mm-hmm. And then when they go to, they call it a downhole log. It looks for temperature and radiation, and they look at the two, and there may be some other things they're looking for, and then they pinpoint it on a depth, and then they go they go look at that depth. And they'll run in, they can run in with packers. I'll send a tool handle bring packers out, and they'll set a plug below that depth shoot it, and then they'll run a packer above it and see if anything flows up the tubing to surface from that, that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much technology in the gas and oil industry. Uh, I think it's one of the most advanced industries there are for technology. Oh, absolutely. I can see it. Well, do you think, and, you know, and we all see the media every day, and what do you think the lifespan of the oil? Like, how much oil do we have? You know, some you know people say we're going to run out of oil any day. You know, what do you think the average? What, what is the in your field? Like, how long if we use straight oil? How long would we have? If you know off the top of your head, I wouldn't be able to answer that accurately. But I know I that we haven't drilled. We haven't drilled all the ocean yet, and that takes up most of the earth. We've drilled a lot of the land. Okay. Um, and just just because people like you know you know, with the media and they hype everything up and, you know, this is the way they try to spin things is that, you know, it's, we're on it. We're going to run out of oil tomorrow and it's going to be the apocalypse. And 
any, yeah. to me, any person with common sense would realize that's that's not correct. Yeah, um, sometimes you just gotta have faith in all your educated people that are doing the research and other technologies because uh, I think the transition into the electric cars is probably gonna be a good thing. Yeah, so you don't have all your eggs in one basket with the oil. Half your neighbors can be driving around electric cars while the other half are out of oil. Maybe you can hitch a ride with them. But uh, I don't. It's not gonna run out tomorrow. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Nah, nah, I mean, it'll I, run out eventually, but by then yeah. we're going to have other other ways of getting around. And I bring that question up just because, you know, somebody's always thinking that, like, you know, just, you know oh, is we're going to run out because the media said so. I was like, hold on, take it easy. Can't believe everything what the media tells you to. So Yeah. So you're going to basically just going to retire out of the oil business. Do you have any future endeavors to do do anything else? Um, no, not right now. Gotcha. I look for a good hobby. I like to fish. Uh-huh. And, uh, I got a drift boat. I go fishing. Uh, my dad lives in Florida, not too far from you, and uh, I like going down to fish with him while he's still around. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to do, I'm, I, I, we're going to have another, we're gonna, I'm going to have you on again uh, to do an episode about uh, hunting there in Wyoming and the kind of things you deal deal with. Because there's the, um, Guy on Netflix, the Meat Eater. Uh, yeah. Episode. Yeah, I mean, he's really good to watch. But I also want to, you know, I want you to share your story here in a couple couple of weeks. Have you back on, share your story about hunting and fishing and stuff like that. You know, and just always get to hear, you know, hear a regular person, a non-celebrity like you and I, you know, what we do. Yeah. So, but well, Charles, I appreciate you having you on. You know, explaining, you know, telling the world your story. Uh, uh, if you want to finish it out by saying, you know, any tips for anyone going into the oil industry, you know, what would you advise somebody who's 18 who wants to go into the oil industry? What, do, what would you tell them? Uh, stick with it, pay off, and uh, listen to the people around you. It's hard work. It pays well. Um, just stick to it. Have a lot of determination. You'll at least stand at least stand fifteen feet back from any machinery so you don't lose your life or fingers. <laughs> yeah, watch where you're at. Pay attention to those around you where they're standing. Um and there's jobs for everybody in the oil field. Uh there's jobs for handicapped people. You don't have to be on the rig, you don't have to be on the floor. There's so many jobs that are related to it. They need all all types of people. Um That's good. man, woman, I don't think we can employ children, but Right. <laughs> That's for the other countries that do that crap. Yeah, I'm sure they do. But uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, really Charles, I pre- that, yeah, I appreciate you. And we'll have you on again for the for the hunting and fishing episode. All right, that sounds good. All right, talk to you later. Yeah.